Welcome to Legal Trailblazers, where we talk about black lawyers and their role in the ushering in of the constitutional democracy that South Africa enjoys today. This is part two of the interview with Judge Mujabilo. In part one, he sketched out the influence that black consciousness had on him as a student and young lawyer. He also made some illuminating points about African customary law. In part two, he tells us about his law partnership and what was debated behind the scenes in the first meeting of the Judicial Services Commission in 1994. Judge Mujapi later established a law partnership in Nelspruit with Mr. Matthew Prosser, a classmate of his at the University of the North. Mr. Prosser later became a treasurer general of the ruling party in South Africa, the ANC. He had also discussed the possibility of forming a partnership with Mr. Cyril Ramaphosa, who would later ascend to the position of president of South Africa. Why did you go to Nelspruit? Uh, because you were working in Johannesburg. Uh, by the way, when you qualified as an attorney, were you still at Weber Wenzel or had you left? I, I qualified at Weber Wenzel and worked as a professional assistant for a year. And then you decided to open this partnership in Nelspruit. Yes, and probably if I didn't go there, uh, Ramaphosa and I would have opened a law practice in Johannesburg. Oh, had you discussed that? Well, we kind of like just spoke about it in passing. He was doing his articles of flagship with uh, Raymond Tucker. Matthew Posa did his articles of flagship uh, with Godfrey Rayburn. And uh, we kind of like used to meet during that time and talk about what we would do in future. What uh, Cyril and I discussed never happened. What Matthew Posa and I discussed happened in Nelspruit. Deas was the only black law firm in that neck of the woods. It handled all manner of cases. Inevitably, amongst those were a lot of political cases. We're an all-rounder of a law firm, but inevitably, we came into the space which the existing law firm did not fill that well. Cases which would be first, let me just rephrase, Cases which arose from friction between white people and black people. Cases which arose from friction between government and the black people. Nobody did those cases. But we did not only start those cases. When we started, we actually started with white and black clients as well. If you look at the background of where we did our article flagship, when we started in Nelspruit, we were even stronger in commercial law than your standard platteland uh, attorneys. And by the time we left here, we had black lines and white lines. But as history would dictate it, we came into that space where our firm was identified as the law firm to go to if you had problems with apartheid, with whites, who really looked down upon black people and treated them as second-class citizens, even in commercial relations. I mean, people think about segregation only in public space. But I mean, a black person would take his trousers to a dry clean owned by a black, a white person, and when they couldn't find it, just sorry, we can't find it. So, black people had no law firm, no lawyers who were sympathetic to their rights generally as human beings. And we came in to fill that space before, as you said, we got on to what became pure political cases. We did 
We registered companies, we did family disputes, we did media law. There's nothing we couldn't do. Yes. Hmm. Nelspreet is uh, not far not far from uh, Swaziland. That is true. And also not far from Mo- Mo- Mozambique. That is true. There were a lot of uh, crossings, illegal crossings by underground members of the ANC who were fleeing from South Africa into Swaziland or um, from Mozambique and from Swaziland back to South Africa on their underground activities. Uh, your law firm being the only one at the time, black law firm in that area, uh, did you represent a lot of these cadres? Didn't you then at the time then had a, have a problem by apartheid authorities thinking or suspecting that you were assisting these cadres of the ANC or of the other liberation movements who were doing the ins and outs illegally uh, to the borders of South Africa, going to Swaziland and or Mozambique? My answer to all those questions would have been yes. Um, we did not think that we were there by the blessing of the apartheid government. We were there in spite of its wishes to the contrary. The beauty was that the law we were practicing is one in the making of which our own communities have not had a hand and if we studied it, understood it, and we could find space to argue for some rights for our own people under it, we would not back the apartheid government if our own interpretation of that law said these people must be granted these rights. We did not start a law firm which would make apartheid rulers and its founders smile all the time. We understood that to be black and proud, you had to support what is essentially resistant. Where we are aware of those disgruntled with the apartheid crossing out of the country, yes, we were. Where we are aware of trained soldiers of MK, APLA, crossing in the country, on a political and military program. Yes, we were. And most of them became our clients. In the middle 80s, the character of our law firm changed to be a champion of those. I could give you a list of who we represented. And that happened simultaneous with a popular uprising within the country led by the UDF from 1983. Now, we opened our doors on the 1st of November, 1981. And almost as if we're called by history, the political machinations and the political significance of that territory just comes to the fore. Um, 1982, apartheid South Africa, fed up with the Inos Mabuse and Kangwani decide if they don't take independence, we will take the whole of the black population of that area and incorporate them into Swaziland. So we come into an anti-incorporation case in 1982, where we actually litigate against what was then called the central government. And around the same time, Cadres get arrested, so they are tortured, they die in the hands of the police. Some end up in the courts. And you are right, we are seen as a Badongi law firm which is prepared to take on those cases and which we take them into the country, into the courts, sorry. This case of uh, involving Mr. Enos Mabuza who was then the head of the Gangwane uh, government, 
Kangwane was the uh, homeland, but it was not an, a, an independent homeland like the Siskais and the Transkais. That is true. What were, what were the issues in this case? Enos Mabuza and his government were opposing the decision by the nationalist government to incorporate uh, Kangwane, which is a part of what is now known as Mpumalanga province. Yes. in South Africa, into Swaziland. How, how did that happen? What were the issues at play there? Uh, you, you were representing the Congolese government in their opposition. Now, your question is what were the issues? Yes. Background to an understanding of the issues is that the grand design of apartheid was that the nine or ten homelands would in due course become independent and therefore their inhabitants which represented all black people of South Africa, even those in Soweto, Mamilodi, uh, Inyanga and whatever, would belong to some homeland. And South Africa would therefore in due course not have black citizens anymore when all of them were independent. And the grand design was therefore, everyone must take independence. Inos Mabuza and his Inyanza movement and uh, Mangosuitu Butelezi were outspoken in saying, we are part of South Africa and we will never accept that we would become independent. Inos Mabuza was particularly known for saying the true leaders of black people are in exile and in Robben Island. We are at best temporary administrators of the areas we are having. They could not force him to take independence. And how then were they going to deal with this black patch on a white South Africa. They took a decision that the predominantly Swazi-speaking South Africans, which were around Nelspreit and the Lowfeld, had to go to Swaziland. And Pretoria was prepared to give away part of what was South Africa and incorporate it into Swaziland because they were not prepared to take independence. But if you look at what became Puputatswana, Mangope, and whatever, they took independence and there was no desire to incorporate them into Botswana, nor was there a desire to incorporate the Basutus of around Bluefontein yeah. into Lesotho. Yeah. But the issues were... Nationalist Party wanted to get rid of this area. And as far as Kwazulu is concerned, they sliced off its nose and part in Guavuma and said it will be incorporated there. They actually signed an agreement with Swaziland to cede part of South Africa with its citizens to the kingdom of Swaziland. But what, what happened to that, to the Nguavuma? The issues... Yeah in that case was that our clients did not accept that South Africa could unilaterally take their citizenship, take their land, and make them citizens of another country. And they went to court on that issue, and we represented them. The outcome is today, when 1994 came, those areas were still part of South Africa. So the issues was really getting rid of parts of South Africa and giving them to a poorer, underdeveloped Swaziland. Just what was then known as Kangwani had more people than were there in the entire Swaziland. Kangwani had just over a million population at a time when Swaziland had 750 or so people. So the idea really was apartheid government, you're not taking independence, we will give you to Swaziland. And uh, 
the question became, can you really take away the citizenship of people without consultation? So there was an agreement between the Swaziland government and the South African government? In principle. In principle. Yes. But you then put it But, but they, 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 they went ahead actually to dissolve the Gangwani government and take the cast from the ministers and appoint an administrator to run that area. And we went to court and say, you can't do that without consultation. Yes. The very law that we did not make said you have to consult with people if their rights were going to be affected. In 1994, Judge Mujabilo was a commissioner of the Judicial Services Commission, the JSC, in his then position as the national president of the Black Lawyers Association. The JSC is the body mandated by the Constitution to interview candidates for judicial office and to make recommendations for the permanent appointments to the president. In 1994, its first order of business was the selection of judges who would serve in the new constitutional court. In 1994, I'm the president of the Black Lawyers Association. Pius Langa is the president of the National Association for Democratic Lawyers. Michael Corbett is the Chief Justice of South Africa. He's being approached by President Mandela to say, in terms of the Constitution, we must form a Judicial Service Commission under your chairmanship. And in terms of the Constitution, there has to be a representation of the practicing legal profession, which was split into attorneys and advocates. Chief Corbett wrote to the presidents of BLA, Nadel, the Law Society, the Bar Council, and say, would you please liaise and nominate representatives? There was a bit of scuffle because the historically white societies insist that they represented the lawyers and not BLA and Nadell. And BLA and Nadell said, we are not represented by those society, except to the extent that we are compelled by law in order to practice, to be represented by them. So there was a bit of an argument that uh, Corbett presided over to say who actually represents the advocates and who represents the attorneys. BLA and Nadell said, we represent both. And uh, we, would, we are entitled to nominate. And the white parties actually went ahead to nominate white representative to the exclusion of BLA and Nadell. And Pius and I deliberately caused a conflict by also nominating attorneys and advocates. And we wrote to, to Cobbett jointly and said, our white colleagues are refusing to liaise with us. We believe it must be a joint nomination. But because they don't want to liaise, here's our nomination. And poor Cobbett had to preside over that. And we ended up in a situation where they had to withdraw some of their nominees to allow us to nominate. I ended up being a representative of the attorney's profession from the BLA. And uh, Pius Langer did not go into the JSC. Maruma Mayarani did because Pius Langer was soon to be a candidate to be appointed to the Constitutional Court. So there was a bit of that battle about who actually represents the profession. And our view saying apartheid cannot alone speak for the profession. We need joint participation. Those views existed even once we are on the JSC. And you said, to say it's got to be white and senior counsel, it's rubbish. 
actually trying to convert the constitution. And of course, their counter argument was, you know what? Broadly representative of the gender and race composition doesn't mean we must go and do a bin count and find how many blacks are there, how many women are there, and then brought them in. It is good enough if we bring in representations which are sympathetic to the aspirations of all the genders of all races. And that's rubbish, because it was basically said black, white people could be qualified to represent black people. Of course, there was a pushback by some members <coughs> excuse me, of the GSC. Um, I recall Professor Etienne. Morenic. Morenic from Vets. My, my, my very well recognized opponent within those debates. Yes. Uh, and the where, where did you pick that up? I, I did my research. All right. Uh, and the debate had to be stood down. Uh, overnight so that both of you could uh, calm yourselves down <laughs> and to try to come with a compromise. And then the following day, the discussions continued. Uh, what happened then? I think, Tito, you should just write the script on your own. You know enough. Yes, I, I wish I could, but I, I need to hear it from the house's mouth. Well, eventually... We agreed that much as we had to put together a judiciary which is sympathetic and empathetic to all the races, members of those races and the genders were in fact best qualified to represent their own interests. Basically, appoint blacks and women, full stop. That's the way you get, you get around it. Yes. You cannot go and have to affairs commissioners who are identified by the white government as being experts on black aspirations to represent blacks. Now ask the white lawyers as to who their black lawyers were. You had to take black lawyers and women along. And we settled on that. And I'm happy that we are able to proceed as we did to appoint white, black, male, female, and a broad representation of people to the judiciary. Whether we succeeded or not, that's a judgment history will bring upon our work. Uh, at the first meeting, did you discuss how the new judiciary should look like? I'm talking about transformation, substantive transformation of the judiciary. Even then, what, what does that mean? Well, that is where that debate with Murenik uh, took place. There was a view that uh, apartheid had kept black people from occupying top legal positions, and we must wait for history for that to happen. And it was an insult to actually say to Gottfried Pichy, you are not top enough, you must wait. And some people said, now that apartheid is gone, if we wait long enough in due course, there'll be people who qualify. But uh, we accepted that if we look at black lawyers and their representative, we would find people with potential, and that potential had to be given expression in the appointment process. This viewpoint that you held during these uh, discussions didn't they come back to haunt you when you applied for the position of a judge president of uh, the Houghton Division? Didn't this matter come up during that interview? I, I, I don't know if there were unarticulated uh, views, but I'll tell you what, I had no reason and still have no reason to regret the views I held. In fact, when we went into that first JSC, I assumed that people understood the constitutional injunction to say that we must now appoint blacks and people who have been historically excluded 
And if he didn't say that, I would have had to fight my entire life. And if it meant standing outside the JC and the judiciary to continue that fight, I would have. I did not price it above a proper, integrated, non-racial judiciary to say that I have to be the one who is inside. So if I had to fight for the cause, I would have taken any other position. I did not have to be a JP. I did not have to be a judge. I did not have to be a DJP in order to articulate what I believe to be right. Immediately thereafter, Judge Mujabilo left his law firm to become a judge after having been opposed by his peers in the legal profession to avail himself for permanent judicial appointment. It came from the legal profession. And I think in my memory, the person who actually started raising the subject was Chief Justice Ismail Mohammed. We, as the JSC, composed as we did of representatives from various interest groups in society, had to work hard. When our white colleagues said there are no black people to fit this bill, we had to go and find them and bring them to be candidates. And we reached a point at which we say, well, we are really scratching the bottom and we must start looking somewhere. And Ishmael Mohammed just looked at me and said, what about you? As a chief justice, in the 30, 40, 50 years, in the three, five to 10 years that I've been here, I have helped to find so many black judges, so many women judges, and I think I will find many more if I remain here. You don't know them as much as I do, so I'm happy to continue. He said, well, we have reached a point where every senior black lawyer has to make themselves available. And I said, I'm happy to go out and look for them. And he said, in his view, we had reached a point where if certain senior black lawyers don't make themselves available, and he said, particularly you, will get to a point where top lawyers don't think this is a position to take because the best don't. How old were you when you became a judge? And wasn't it difficult to live a, a lucrative <laughs> practice to go into judgeship? I was in my early 50, 50, 51, 52, and that's, that's acting. And uh, yes, there were opportunities in business. I had shareholdings and directorships in BE companies. But once the decision had been made, it meant that I had to abandon all those directorships and focus on what judgeship required. I did it, and in due course, I realized that it was less important to have more money in order to make impact on society, and much more important actually just to survive and continue to articulate your views and make contributions. My former co-directors and partners in business were later shocked when I told them I actually don't want to be rich because you need only so much in order to go through your own life. And people will not remember you for how much money you have but what impact you made on their life and on the life of the society. So I underwent a complete change and I espoused the idea of public servant wood as opposed to accumulation of wealth. I have great respect for those of my colleagues who remained in business 
in order to represent black interest in that sphere as well. But it was equally important that in areas where we were running out of black actors and I was qualified, I should step into that space. I hope that's not too long an answer. No, it is not. And uh, how long did you... You you went straight to to work as a judge in in the Johannesburg High Court or did you start off in Pretoria? I was appointed to the uh, Pretoria High Court, TBD. That's what it was then called. And then you were promoted after some few years to be a deputy judge president of the Johannesburg High Court. Promotion is not the word. What the way it happens is that you have to be appointed to the next level and you get nominated to make yourself available. After two years as an ordinary judge in Pretoria, and after the retirement of uh, Deputy Judge President Murenik and the end of the acting term of Bitskapot, that position was published and I was shocked that uh, my colleagues and particularly the black lawyering profession Nadell and BLA thought I should make myself available for that position. I was reluctant. I thought I didn't need to be in that position in order to make the kind of impact I could make. But I was persuaded by some that if I didn't make myself available, the kind of candidates which were needed to run that particular division might not get on and do that job. I was, I made myself available and I was appointed as the first DJP for Johannesburg. When you assumed this position of the DJP, what were the main goals and objectives that you set out to achieve in, in this new position? Having spent eight years at the JSC talking about what must happen to the judiciary and what must happen to the courts and what instruments needed to be in place in order to realize the constitutional vision of a representative court, of an apathetic, of a court which in appearance had the potential and had the intellectual capacity to take the country forward. I had fairly clear views. I knew deep in me the role of continuing judicial education, infusing the skills which are there on the bench, And I knew the challenges in the infrastructure of the court. And I had some views about what it would take to resolve some of those. Judicial education and ongoing support of the appointment of transformation candidates and the exposure of judges to varying types of work in order to build a bench which is competent at all levels, a bench in which competence is not defined by race, were uppermost in my mind. And I had ideas about what would happen and should happen. Some of them were never realized, others were. And also... You are involved in a program whose aim is to see an increasing number of women judges in the bench. Yes. You are involved in the, That should be a, a, a subject that you are particularly passionate about. I've always been passionate about, as I say, some of my views and aspirations were realized and others were not. 
when I arrived at the bench, in terms of race, black people represented almost just under 10%. Before I left, black people on the bench were almost 33%. When I went into the bench and took leadership, there was an even lesser representation of the gender composition. And uh, it has increased, but gender parity on the bench is much lower. And the new struggle area for transformation of the bench is probably the one for transforming gender. I am one for transforming with skills. It's possible to build skills, but you can't give people a new race, no matter how sympathetic they may be. So, under the Minister, Justice Minister Bridget Mabanza, a program was started to find competent women lawyers and take them through a course which would make them ready for judicial appointment within a short time. I'm happy to have been involved in that program in 2007 and it delivered some of the top judges who are now in the High Courts, in the Supreme Court of Appeal, and in the Constitutional Court. Bridget Mabanda did it in 2007, and I'm happy that finally the current minister has accepted that there has to be a training course which is looking at women to prepare them to come to the bench. Judicial education, I was telling you about my passion, is preparatory, it's ongoing, and you also have to have an education program which is deliberately geared at bringing the skills and the competences that you want on the bench. It's not enough for us to moan that we don't have enough women on the bench. If we haven't got a program, we deliberately want to bring them on the bench. I mean, uh, it's almost like saying we don't have enough top lawyers, but you're not building them. True. So I'm happy that uh, um, there is talk under the current minister for a program which is dedicated as at identifying women, training them, and preparing them for judicial appointment. I believe it will work. I was involved in the previous one, and uh, I am involved in the thinking around the new one, and um, a curriculum has been developed, candidates have been sourced, and it must now just be implemented. We're not running short of trainers, but what we probably need is for those in power to set aside budgets and set space for us to train those lawyers so that they can become ready for judicial appointment. There was a point that arose during the time when... uh, Mr. Ngobo was the Chief Justice and the President of South Africa at the time wanted to extend his tenure as the Chief Justice. And before that could happen around that time, you entered the space to say no, but you have got a problem with the lack of public participation in the appointment of a Chief Justice. We know that the last time the interviews relating to the incumbent Chief Justice before his appointment, there was a lot of public participation. We know the story there. What was the issue then? What made you to agitate? Or what was the problem 
that you had with that process at that time, which made you to say, no, look, I have a problem. There has to be more public participation. What does the principle involved from your side? I had been at the Judicial Services Commission for eight years. The term of Corbett as the Chief Justice was extended and he acted for a further period. I had been at the Judicial Services Commission when the vacancy for the first Chief Justice for South Africa arose and I was at the JSC when that appointment was made. Over and above that, as a member of the legal profession and as a leader of the BLA, I had contemplated about what this constitution means. And my understanding was that a chief justice of South Africa is a chief justice of the country. It's not a chief justice of the lawyers. It's not a chief justice just of the judges. He is the head of the third arm of the state. With the appointment of Ishmael Mohammed, there had been public participation at the initial stage. And even in the appointment process, Ishmael Mohammed was interviewed together with Judge Van Heerden, and they were opposing candidates. South Africans were involved in nominating their Chief Justice. They were involved in commenting on their competence. And they were involved in saying which way they think it should go. And only thereafter, the President had exercised his constitutional power with the ground prepared and the process of him making up his mind enriched by the participation of the broad South African society, not only the legal profession. I thought that was right. And uh, I wrote an article in the newspaper not concerning the extension of the term of Chief Justice uh, Ngobo. I wrote it at a time when there was no Chief Justice to be appointed. Really to say, South Africa needs to engage about how to appoint a Chief Justice and make him a true representative or a reflection, one who is truly a Chief Justice of the country. And I thought the element of public participation, which had not been followed in subsequent appointment, needed to be brought up to the fore. I thought South Africa, being a new democracy, needed to debate that. And sitting as I were, as a sitting judge, and with the benefit of Having reflected on that, I just thought I would write that article, leave it in the public debate, and let the public debate and decide whether there is a case to be made for public participation. Yes, I was very happy that President Ramaphosa opened up that door for public participation and that there was... Public participation, some people said he opened it too much. But in between, that was almost totally closed when the president would just say, I want Sorenzo to, to, to be the chief justice. JC, please interview this candidate. And the JC said, we can't second guess the president. Yes, the president, you can appoint you. I thought public participation was very poor. And at the time when I wrote the article which spoke for itself, I thought the country needed the kind of guidance which I called for. Some people regretted it. Yes. And if we went back in history to that point, I would still write that article. And in fact, if President Ramaphosa had not opened up the space 
for public participation as it did, there would most probably have been another article with heavy academic and authorities to say, South Africa, please think again. Can I please go back, Judge, on your leadership of the Johannesburg High Court? The changes that you you brought there as the head of admin of that court, amongst other functions that you were um, handling there. The issue, for instance, of the renovation of that court, what challenges did you have? Of course, you had to get buy-in from the from the Department of Justice to do that. Did they uh, facilitate this whole, did they assist you? Did you have a problem? I'm asking this because um, that building of the of the High Court is situated in an area of the Johannesburg CBD, which has got its own challenges. Uh, there's a lot of crime, debt around there. There's an issue of uh, physical safety of uh, of members of the public, of litigants who must walk into the courthouse, of lawyers who must frequent the courthouse. Um, are you happy with what you achieved or with what you set out to achieve in improving the conditions of service in the Johannesburg High Court? whilst you were the head of that court? I'm happy with what I set out to achieve. I'm not happy with what was achieved. I had practiced in Johannesburg as a candidate attorney and as a PA. I understood its challenges. And if there's one area in which we failed is the area in which you have just articulated the question. The court present, they have crumbled and they have become bad and they are worse right in front of our eyes. I've done lots of programs in terms of the running of the courts, judicial education. There is a center within that court, which is now known as the Phineas Mujabelu Continued Judicial Education Center. Those are the non-problem areas. They were once problem areas. The court present is a major, major problem. I arrived there aware of it. I assumed that court leadership could work together with politicians, the province, national government, and the local government to improve the prison. When I arrived there, there were already initiatives. There was an agency which I chaired to improve the prisons very much along the lines of what was done at the Constitutional Court. It required the commitment of property owners around that place. So that is not just the role of government. And property owners needed to contribute, proportionate with the value of their properties. It being a court presence, Government had to contribute more because the anchor of the presence is government. Regrettably, either because of budgetary restraints or lack of political will, government was not able to make a commitment equal to what the private sector owners of property were. And the program to renovate the presence did not take off. There has been several attempts to revive that. You need public buy-in into that initiative. Courts in this country are not in the hands of judges. 
not even in the hands of the office of the Chief Justice. They are in the hands of, what is that, public, Department of Public Works. Public Works, yes. And the judiciary does not even get it directly from Public Works. Public Works gives it to the Department of Justice, which is outside. And the Department of Justice has to do certain things. Now, I was outspoken about what needed to be done. And it's sad that we haven't done it. It could be done. It should be done. I remember during the short ministry of both Mabandla and then um, and Vasetti. Oh, yes. I told her, them. Her deputy, yes. Yeah, but he eventually took over okay. for a very short time. I told them that the politicians have to take one of the two decisions. Decision one was invest in improving that precinct, very much like constitutional court was done, bank city was done, and so on. The only alternative to that, I said to them, buy a farm in Midrand before those farm that thing and have a housing court there with easy access and whatever, which could actually bring together Pretoria and Johannesburg, given that the province is so small. None of those have been done. And unfortunately, you have mentioned who have become victims of crime. I have to tell you, judges have become victims of crime as well. Judges have been marked in their way to and from court. And the country ran a risk of most competent people which are available at the Johannesburg and Pretoria High Court not making themselves available because of the court court prisons. That's an area in which we have not succeeded and that's an area in which there is a need for more public and political buy-in than there is at the moment. You either put the courts in the hands of an agency which can run them and do them, or government must make funds and programs available in accordance with the views of the judges. At the moment, the views of, of the judges, including judicial leaders, about what should happen to the prisons cannot be realized by anybody. The government can just do what it thinks. And I do not know whether there is political awareness that that structure and the prisons are crumbling to an embarrassing stage where no leader who's self-respecting would want to sit on top of that. I I mean, to have a high court which sometimes doesn't even have water. Yes, it's bad. It's so bad. Yes. And this is supposed to be South Africa and Africa's busiest commercial court. Come on, we can do better, South Africa. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.